Welcome to On the Farm. I'm your host, John Bazaar. I'm an associate professor of pharmacy practice and a supporting sponsor of Onca Farm, the Bill Gatt College of Pharmacy at East Tennessee State University. Today, it is June 25th, 2020, and the COVID numbers are not looking good, especially in Texas, Arizona, and some other places in the Southeast. So if you're listening, stay strong out there. Uh, the purpose of this, uh, this episode is actually uh, to fulfill a request from a rising PGY2 oncology pharmacy resident who's going to start, I would guess, within the week, uh, PGY2 uh, oncology pharmacy residency, and asked for um, a podcast on clinical trial endpoints in oncology, and, and when is it appropriate to use which endpoint, uh, which I think is a great idea. So before we, we talk about that, and we're going to keep things big picture here, I want to read you a quote from William Bruce Cameron, and this is a quote that's often misattributed to Albert Einstein, but it is, not everything that can be counted counts, and not everything that counts can be counted. And this is something in academia you run into a lot when you talk to assessment folks and the culture of assessment, and oftentimes we tend to, we, in a global sense, tend to focus on things that are easy to count and place greater emphasis on things that are easy to count which doesn't necessarily always count, instead of what really counts. So what counts in oncology? Well, improved survival or improved quality of life. That's really, you know, how you break it down. Now, you can measure improved survival with, you know, like median overall survival like we do with the log rank test, log rank test Kappa-Meyer method. You could look at a landmark overall survival analysis, say a five-year overall survival from diagnosis or cure in some cases. And there are lots of ways to measure quality of life. We won't, not going to get into all those uh, endpoints. Um, but there is some historical context for using quality of life as the primary endpoint. In fact, gemcitabine's approval for pancreatic cancer was based on a primary endpoint that was quality of life as defined by a, a decrease by more than 50% in pain, uh, more than a 20-point improvement in Karnofsky performance status, or like a 7-pound weight gain, for example, as long as uh, they remain stable with their pain requirements. Uh, so there is good precedent for using quality of life to, for a drug approval. Um, but really, overall survival is the most important thing to look at. Now, the first thing that I ask when I'm evaluating a study and the primary endpoint is the same thing I really ask myself when I evaluate a patient, and that is, is this disease curable? Um, if the answer is no, then it's a metastatic disease like solid tumor, then probably median overall survival hazard ratio log rank test is the best endpoint to use. Now, if the disease is curable, you could still look at median overall survival, Let's take limited stage small cell lung cancer, for example. Uh, it's a curable disease. Maybe one in five could be cured. Um, you might have two treatments where the median overall survival is the same, but say the four-year overall survival is higher in one group, and that would be those that are, that are hopefully cured. So there are differences even within overall survival, whether you're looking at you know, the average or really the median overall survival or a landmark analysis where you're looking at overall survival and say one year, two year, three year, four year, et cetera. Now, a nice example of where this makes a difference is the ABVD versus MOP study uh, by Canalos and colleagues in New England Journal of Medicine in 2002. And if you look at the two-year overall survival uh, data, ABVD versus MOP and Hodgkin's disease, the same overall survival. Um, and by that point, we know we're probably out of the woods with regards to, to Hodgkin's cure, all right? So we've cured the same number of people with Hodgkin's. However, so if you stopped the study then and didn't follow those folks, you would say, great, ABVD is as good as MOP. However, when you look at the eight-year eight overall survival data, ABVD is better than MOP. And that's because of secondary leukemias uh, likely due to mechlorethamine in MOP. 
and so while both regimens appear to be equally efficacious with regards to curing Hodgkin's disease, one is better at terms of long-term survival because of late toxicity. So there are several things to think about when you uh, assess overall survival. That is, um, if it's metastatic, are patients living longer? If it's a curable disease, are folks living longer and is that is that cure, for example, are things to consider? And cure is a hard thing to, to really assess, and you'll notice we don't use the C word, the good C word, cure, a lot in the oncology literature. However, despite overall survival being, you know, the gold standard endpoint really for every disease, you don't see it a lot these days. And what we see the most of is PFS or progression-free survival. So first of all, to measure progression-free survival, there has to be a disease to progress, which means these patients have active disease. And this is usually an endpoint almost entirely in the metastatic setting. Uh, it's a surrogate endpoint, and in some disease states, progression-free survival is highly correlated with overall survival in other disease states. It may not be. Uh, so why would you use a surrogate marker? Well, one, it's easier to show a difference. Uh, but let's give folks the benefit of the doubt running the trials. They're not just trying to get a positive p-value. The reason maybe to study PFS is that you can get your results faster. So let's give an example where this makes sense. And that would be an, with an indolent disease. Let's say, um, let's say prostate cancer. Gleason scores six prostate cancer, more of an indolent disease uh, that's metastatic. Let's say CLL. Uh, an indolent disease. Let's say hormone-positive breast cancer with bone-only meds, somewhat of an indolent disease. Uh, you know, say several of these patients uh, with hormone-positive breast cancer that's only spread to the bones will live more than five years. Um, and if you have an indolent disease, it takes a lot longer to see an overall survival benefit. So PFS sometimes can be useful uh, because you can find out which treatment effect has more treatment for that cancer uh, earlier than waiting for the overall survival data uh, to mature. Now, progression can be assessed commonly in solid tumors via the RESIST criteria, R-E-C-I-S-T, which is R-E, response evaluation, C, criteria, N-S-T, solid tumors, R-E-C-I-S-T. And then every, you know, other disease states have their own specific criteria, like the International Myeloma Working Group has response criteria, complete response, partial response, stable disease, progressive disease. And when we're looking at progression-free survival, um, you know, and that event occurs if there is progression of disease or death from any cause. Now, here are the problems with progression-free survival, is there's a whole, the whole issue of crossover, uh, which we could have a whole podcast on. In fact, there is a podcast called Plenary Session that talks a lot about this. Um, but another thing to think about is the sequencing of issues. Um, and, um, you know, I heard a, uh, a lung oncologist in my training t tell me um, she thinks of, this was more than a decade ago, so it's even more apt now that, you know, metastatic non-small cell lung cancer is like, it's kind of like a chess game, and I know I only have a limited number of moves, and I want to sequence those moves as best as possible. So I try to think about what kind of performance stats my patient have after one or two progression events. How many progression events reasonably does a patient have in a disease that takes some experience seeing patients over and over again. So every time you encounter a patient, that is a learning experience. So when you see a patient come in to the clinic or the hospital and you see they've had four prior treatments, that tells you something about that patient's disease course and that disease in general of how many progression events these patients can have sometimes. And PFS is usually just looking at one of those progression-free events. If it's a very aggressive disease, usually death will follow sooner after a progression event. But if you have, say, metastatic breast cancer that's hormone positive with bone-only meds, there are going to be probably a couple progression events in that, in that patient's lifetime before eventually and sadly they succumb to their disease. So it's important to think about that. Where are they in their treatment? 
PFS in the first line metastatic setting is a very different endpoint than PFS in the third line treatment setting for a metastatic disease. Uh, in the first line setting, uh, they probably have several other progression events, which means it's probably going to be harder to show an overall survival difference uh, versus if you're studying you know, PFS later in the disease course, say a heavily pretreated population. Um, yeah, PFS can be, can be a little troubling, and um, it's always useful to look at the magnitude of benefit of PFS. Generally, the larger the PFS difference, the more likely it would perhaps to correlate with overall survival, but it's very disease-specific, and that takes a lot of nuance and, and some experience reading studies and taking care of these patients. Now, there are some other PFS-like endpoints. So, so one is disease-free survival, or sometimes it's relapse-free survival, which is time for randomization to either death or the disease comes back or there's relapse. So this is kind of like the PFS of the adjuvant setting. Uh, and it's really a surrogate marker. Um, and, you know, hypothetically, let's say you have a woman with stage 3 hormone receptor pro positive breast cancer. Um, you might measure disease-free survival because we know those folks are probably going to do well. When the disease comes back, it's probably incurable. And that maybe tells us something. Um, another example where disease-free survival um, could be used uh, where it might not be a great predictor is a disease that has a really, really great second-line option. So let's look at like a stage one or favorable risk testicular cancer. After orchiectomy, you can maybe either do some early treatment, like say one dose of carboplatin, or observation. And one of those, the treatment, will probably have a better disease-free survival, but no difference in overall survival because the patients on observation uh, if and when their disease comes back, have excellent chemotherapy options that are very, very effective at curing testicular cancer. So you also have to think about uh, the aggressiveness of the disease as well as how good our subsequent therapies are going to be after a progression event or after a relapse event. Uh, and event-free survival is very similar to both either, in fact, event-free survival is maybe an umbrella term for either progression-free survival or disease-free survival. It's just you have to define the event, which could be relapse, it could be progression of disease, it could be time to subsequent therapy. It's really a lot like um, event-free survival is kind of like all the cardiology study primary endpoints, a composite of overall survival and cardiovascular death and cardiovascular revascularization. That's sort of like the event-free survival in oncology. Uh, overall response rate, OR, or objective response rate, you see those terms somewhat used interchangeably. Really, this is a sign of activity. Uh, and if you look at the resist criteria, very simply, a partial response would be the disease shrinks by 30%. Complete response means you can't find the disease anywhere in the labs, on the scans, on physical exam. Okay? This doesn't really mean a whole lot. Uh, overall response rate just means that whatever treatment has some activity in the disease. It's a little bit like studying a new antihypertensive and measuring decrease in systolic blood pressure. We, I mean, we care that the blood pressure goes down with somebody with hypertension, but what we care more about is that they don't have strokes or heart attacks or die. Those would be our patient-oriented outcomes. So response rate is a disease-oriented outcome. Uh, we don't, or a, a disease-oriented endpoint. Uh, it just shows that there's disease activity. It's a great uh, endpoint for, say, a phase two study. Probably not a great endpoint for FDA approval. All right, a couple uh, maybe subtle things or, or special considerations. Um, one would be in our leukemia, lymphoma patients, whatever it may be, where stem cell transplant becomes a viable option down the road, and transplant can be curable. But however, not every patient has the same access 
to transplant, especially if we're talking allogeneic transplants. They're not necessarily going to have a sibling, for example, or a sibling that's matched, uh, or the ability to find an unmatched donor. Uh, so in those studies, you'll often see uh, response rate, progression-free survival, event-free survival used because transplant uh, could confound your overall survival results because some patients may just have better luck uh, in their genes and having availability for a transplant. Uh, and the same goes sometimes for uh, if CAR-T, uh, chimeric antigen receptor T-cell therapy, is an option just because some patients may get unlucky and, and have manufacturing problems uh, because of uh, all the... Uh, the wheels and gears involved in producing uh, a, a dose of a CAR-T. And then finally, from a supportive care standpoint, uh, I'll mention chemotherapy-induced nausea and vomiting, which is a disease state we all should be very familiar with in the studies. Uh, the most common endpoint in those studies is something called uh, complete response, which is not looking at disease progression or disease shrinkage. It is generally a combination of these two things, no emesis and no use of breakthrough antiemetics. Uh, that's usually uh, the assessment of choice for a CINV study, uh, and that's broken into the acute phase, the delayed phase, and then the overall phase, which is the acute and delayed combined. So those, that's just a real brief summary of the endpoints used in oncology and when they're appropriate. I try to point these out when we talk about uh, new studies that are, that are published and how they change practice. Um, and again, overall survival is always the most important thing for our patients and improved quality of life, whether that's measured uh, with uh, a, a clinician-assessed quality of life or a patient-reported outcome quality of life, uh, which uh, those studies um, and published, published publications of those studies, unfortunately, are few and far between uh, these days. So that's what I have. Uh, feel free to share this with your learners. Uh, someone doing a journal club at Oncology may, want, may find this helpful. Um, thank you all for listening. You can follow me on Twitter at FarmDeaton. Follow the podcast on both Twitter and Instagram and Uncle Farm Pod. And until I talk to you again, remember, doses matter. Thank you.